welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore the science behind our behaviors and decisions with the brightest academics and authors to peel back the layers and to apply those insights to improve our lives. When we think about the headlines we see coming from behavioral science, there are lots of really successful interventions and principles. Let's consider the popularity of social proof, the idea that we tend to go along with what other people are doing. This concept has been replicated hundreds, if not thousands of times, and it's a really important principle. Here's one of our guests, Dilip Soman, talking about a clever way of looking at this all too familiar concept. So you think about a classic intervention like telling people that 70% of people uh, in your community do whatever you want them to do. One way I could interpret that is to say, well, the majority does it, so maybe I should do the same thing. The other way is to say, hang on, there's 30% who don't do it, so I have the license to not do it. Dilip is referencing one of the chapters in the new book, Behavioral Science in the Wild. The chapter was written by Oleg Arminsky and Indranil Goswami. And Dilip brought it up to caution us against such simplistic and binary thinking that just because 70% of the people are doing it doesn't necessarily mean that I will do it too. Dilip's co-author of the book, Nina Majar, took this idea a step further to consider the long-term effects of interventions and how difficult it is to draw big, broad conclusions from individual studies. Yeah, so, I mean, oftentimes research is just not set up to monitor the effect of an intervention over a longer period because you would need so many more resources and you would never get to write your paper, which is the ultimate goal as academic, right? So we just don't have that much knowledge about how stable certain interventions are. This is a bold statement for the world we live in. What our guests are calling for is for us to take a step back, to try to back away from the headlines and to ask in a curious way, what other explanations for the behavior could there be in the real world? Yeah, these amazing researchers, Dilip and Nina, they put together a collection of articles or chapters that are just stunners, Kurt, and from some of the brightest minds in behavioral science. If you're a practitioner, meaning you want to apply behavioral science in a corporate or nonprofit or governmental way, we think you should check out this book. It's full of excellent ideas for how to apply behavioral science in the wild. Yeah, I'd take it a step further, Kurt. This book features chapters written not only by some of the greatest researchers on the planet, but a bunch of them have already been guests on Behavioral Groups. Oh my gosh, who would those be, Tim? Well, let's just start with Christina Bicchieri, episodes 102 and 103. 133. 133. 133. Yeah, yeah thank that you. Was, thank then you. She was awesome. Yeah. And, and the, the Katie Milkman, is, uh, she wrote a chapter. And she has been a guest on Behavioral Groups in episode 99 episode 161, and then episodes 232 and 233 when we were splitting the grooving sessions at the time. Four times. Wow. Actually three, yeah. but we'll we'll count it four. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Who else? Well, Christina Gravert. We had her early, early on episode 16 and then episode 205 when she was kind of joined us and did some other yeah. things. Okay. Channing Jang. Episode uh, 202, got, got to hear about the, the Basara Institute from Channing. Oh, wow. And also, we just want to mention Colin Kammerer, who um, we've spoken to, but his episode hasn't come out, which is going to be a huge part of oh, a large yeah. series that we're doing. But Colin is amazing. And again, one of the authors of one of these chapters. So fantastic. Yeah. 
you know, and lastly, I'd like to just give a, a shout out to Cassie Taylor, who is uh, one of the authors of one of the chapters, and she has not been a guest, but I know her work from when she was at the the, uh, the lab at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. Cassie helped coordinate some goal setting experiments and in, in risk and confidence um, on a paper that George and Sarab were working on, and uh, she's now a vice president at Ideas Forty Two. And just want to say, you know, she's got a great practitioner and academic perspective to add to this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, and just in general, the, the book is fantastic by bringing in all of these wonderful researchers, but also people who are applying this stuff in the wild. And so, um, you know, the book itself is coming out at the end of May uh, in 2022. And so we want to encourage you to get a copy while they're still hot. So Groovers, go out and get one of these. Absolutely. Uh, in the meantime, though, we encourage you to sit back with a cup of clever thinking and enjoy our conversation with Dilip and Nina. Nina Majar and Dilip Soman, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Fantastic to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, excited to be here. Absolutely fantastic for us as well. We are going to start, as we always do, with a speed round. I am lucky enough to get the first one. And Dilip, uh, I'll ask you first, coffee or tea? Which is your preference in drinks? Oh, gosh. Can I give a cryptic clue response? <laughs> Captain, <laughs> Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Captain tea, John. Earl Grey, hot. Oh. Any day. <laughs> Engage. Engage. <laughs> All right. That, that's fantastic. Nina, uh, coffee or tea? Tea. Tea? I've nice, never even nice. tasted coffee in my life. You and Tim, look at this. I love having something in common with Nina on this. This is great. <laughs> I don't understand you people, but that's okay. I, I, you know, I will gladly be the outlier here. So that's why we are behavioral scientists, aren't we? We don't understand other people, <laughs> and, and we aim to understand them. This is why I have the, sh you know, why I'm, I, I, I like the show because I get to ask and find out all these things. I don't have to figure it out myself. I have to ask though, Nina, do you like the smell of coffee, or do you object to the smell of coffee? Does it matter to you? I don't particularly like it, but I also don't hate it. Oh. I'm indifferent to it. I actually really like the smell of coffee. I really enjoy the 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 aroma but the i've never tasted it so i don't know okay uh second question nina we'll start with you would you rather have dinner with your favorite musician or favorite athlete musician yeah good anybody come to mind nope <laughs> 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 but i like i like music and so i think there would be more interesting topics to talk about for me at least more interesting than with a sports person since i haven't worked out in the last six years or five years Okay. okay. All right. Dilip, how about you? I'll probably go with music as well. My sense is at some deeper meta level, aren't musicians and good sports people doing the same thing? Like it's all about being in rhythm and striking the chords at the right time. Uh, but no, I'll go with a musician. I'd love to take Paul Simon out for dinner. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, he would be fantastic. I mean, yeah. where did he come up with the Mississippi Delta looking like a national guitar? I think that would be <laughs> an important question for me. Uh, while on national guitars, Mark Knopfler would be another person I'd love oh. to take to dinner. But yeah, I mean, musician. 
Okay, I'm 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 reshifting. So we're going to end the interview about the book in about five minutes, and then we're going to talk about music. Let's okay. do that. <laughs> the rest of the hour. Well, well, hang on, guys. Hang on. We we still have a couple more speed round questions to get through before Tim tries to live his fantasy life here. All right. Um. So I'm going to throw this open for either of you to answer. So is the most important reason that researchers like to be published in academic journals? the huge monetary payoff that they get by publishing in those journals, or is it the prestige that they might get? <laughs> You've been reading Twitter, haven't you? Ooh, maybe, maybe <laughs> just maybe. a little bit on the Twitter there. It's an interesting game. I mean, I'm sure Nina has opinions. I, I'm kind of sort of optimistic that the journal system reforms itself soon. I think now that we're getting more into preprints and open science and people sharing stuff. I think I was always amused by the fact that people did research like with their cards close to their chest. I always thought research had to be like a good conversation. Mm. And um, it wasn't. And, and, and you know, as we are seeing more digital outreach, I, I'm kind of optimistic that we'll be able to get good papers out to the right audiences without paywalls. And uh, we have prestige and impact all at the same time. <laughs> Nina, any thoughts on that? You know, Dilip already answered so eloquently and so well and thoughtful. What could I possibly add? There, there is something <laughs> to, to your point, Dilip. I, I, I have always wondered why this huge paywall is up there for this information that is supposed to be influencing the world, right? And 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 is limited to a small cohort of other academics, typically. And, and obviously, we can talk about that more as we get into some of the, the, the pieces that we have here. But yeah. yeah, and in particular, I think that's one of the reasons why Nina and I went about doing what we are doing, setting up a center where being open, sharing data, sharing results is, is central to what we do. But yeah, I mean, it's a system that doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it needs a lot of reform. Yeah. Last speed round question for you. Is it possible that practitioners can pick up pretty much any academic paper from a behavioral science researcher and then just apply it in the wild? <laughs> I can give a speed response. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's Great. why there is our book. Yeah, which is, <laughs> so Nina, help us help us understand that. What would tell us a little bit about this book and tell us like what was the what was the impetus for you guys to to pull this together and gather all the the inputs that you did for it? Dilip, do you want to start that? Because it was your brainchild. It was my brainchild. I mean, I could start from years ago. Uh, and in fact, when Nina used to be a colleague of mine at the University of Toronto, back in 2010, 2011, we were each working with a different set of practitioners. Richard Taylor and Cass Sunstein book had just been published, well, not just recently been published. And I think the common narrative we heard back then was, this is all so interesting and I'm intrigued, but how do I go about doing this? Mm. Uh, so nobody kind of knew... Uh, what's the process and how do we start looking at the research and what what does a nudge actually even mean? And, and so Nina and I got together, we set up eventually a center at the University of Toronto called BEAR, 
behavioral economics in action at the Rockman School. And uh, that was our mission is to kind of be able to take science to practice. And again, back in the early years, it was more about sort of cheerleading and advocating for the science and showing people that it works. And it was also the time where behavioral science was in its sort of, you know, 1.0 phase where we were still about successes and not failures. And as you know, things have changed. And now we like to talk about what didn't work so fast forward to a couple of years back when, you know, uh, Nina had moved on to Boston University and, you know, still not quite sure why she left us, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, everyone makes mistakes. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we'd actually uh, applied for a, for a grant from the Canadian Federal Agency. And it's, a, it's what they call a platform grant for partnerships. The idea is to bring together people from academia and industry. Uh, and we proposed a project that was about sort of creating a science of using behavioral science. And I think the, the language we used was to say, well, you look in medicine, they have an implementation science. Uh, there's research that happens in the labs and the clinics. And then there is a science which tells us how to take that research and make it useful. And we don't have that in our field. And so that was really the motivation uh, for the book. And very quickly, we realized that uh, we weren't the only two people thinking about that. And uh, all of the other folks that have written chapters in, in our edited book uh, were, were of the similar point of view. So that's really sort of the, the first half of the story. And I don't know, Nina, if you want to add uh, sort of the more recent stuff in terms of conversations. I don't know whether it's, it's more recent stuff, but what I wanted to also add to that is that, you know, oftentimes the way how we have written papers the intervention seems so simple, so intuitive, right? And the papers, at least in the past, have not been written such that they actually tell you all the complex things that were happening in the background. And so I think this is where a big disconnect has been happening, especially for practitioners. If they then went and ran with an idea, so for example, if you read the paper that in the countries where by default people are opted in to donate their organs, right? You may conclude, oh, let's see if we can just try and change the default from the opt-out to, no, sorry, from opt-in to opt-out, right? But that is not the whole story. There is more research to that that has shown, well, if you just change simply the policy, it actually doesn't bring the benefits that you're thinking because, so many other things need to be in place, but the papers usually don't talk about that because they're very specific about a particular goal. They were not written with the idea in mind somebody might want to take this idea and needs guidance. And I think this is where the book really can help practitioners quite a bit because we aim for having chapters that tell practitioners exactly that. Well, at, at one point in the in the in the book, Colin Kammerer argues that maybe not all academic researchers actually destined for the practitioner world. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I'm assuming that you both endorse it because you included Colin's remarks, but can you just talk a little bit about that? So I, I think Colin is absolutely right. I think uh, just as not every book or not every paper has every goal that it should be satisfying, I think it's it's true for research as well. I, I always think about this as, as a hierarchy. So there's sort of, you know, I'll think about this as a last mile applied implementation research, that's stuff that we can do in partnership with a, with a government or a business to actually see how we can get people to change behavior. But there's research that backs that up. 
So as the implementation researcher, where do I get my ideas from? Uh, I get it from the basic stuff. And so I do think about it as a hierarchy of, of research. So I, Colin is absolutely right. Like we shouldn't be uh, going out with the aim of making every single published paper applicable. But I think as long as we sort of have a system, and again, that's what implementation science does. It recognizes the role that different kinds of outputs play in the process of taking science to the community. And I think, we, like, again, we don't have that. So Colin makes an important point, And I think it's important to recognize that. I'm going to go back a little bit because I love the title of the book. It conjures up all sorts of images in my brain. But I'm curious, what, what inspired behavioral science in the wild as a title because you know you could think about that it's like behavioral science in the wild you can think of wild animals different things but no it's about the 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 wild of, of work and and life so help us understand maybe some of the the background on the title i think it has multiple meanings right i mean there's behavioral science that is just being applied by people just by sheer intuition without really understanding too much how to do it that is that is i think one of the aspects, but then also, you know, when you run experiments, oftentimes they're very stylized. They are with, with, with groups that are very similar. I mean, very similar people, for example, all students um, <laughs> all from a particular university, right? And the wild, the real world is much more complex. You find all kinds of people out there in all shapes of forms and all colors and that makes it more interesting, but also more challenging when you're then not trying to scale the research that we're publishing in these academic journals to the general population. That That's great. It, I, I loved it. I thought that there was a fantastic title. As soon as uh, Dilip sent it, sent it to me, I was like, oh, yeah, this is perfect. This is, this is what we need. <laughs> okay, okay. There is also a confession uh, to make, which is we didn't start off with this title. It was kind of like... Oh. It was kind of like, uh, well, you know, Richard, Richard and Cass will tell you that their nudge book used to be called, you know, yeah. uh, uh, us, we, we started it off with some sort of, you know, how do I, it was a title about taking science from the lab to the field. And then obviously we had lots of conversations with lots of people. So we eventually kind of, you know, uh, stuck here. But I think that was the other thing is we've just found being open and getting feedback uh, in this entire process. Like it's just the value of having an edited book with so many people willing to suggest and come up with ideas. That was just like, to me, the most amazing part of it. You know, I've, I've written uh, a book on my own and it's not as much fun. Were there things that um, as you're compiling these chapters, were there ahas that they were like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way? Were there some lovely surprises that came as you're putting the book together? I'll, I'll talk about one for me. I mean, I think uh, there's a chapter in there by Indranil and Oleg Urminsky, which I think takes stuff that I've been thinking about and observing and just puts it into a very elegant framework. They talk about sort of this whole notion that every intervention can have multiple different pathways of results. So you think about a classic intervention like telling people that 70% of people uh, in your community do whatever you want them to do. One way I could interpret that is to say, well, the majority does it, so maybe I should do the same thing. The other way is to say, hang on, there's 30% who don't do it. So I have the license to not do it. And, and so Oleg and Intranil essentially make the point that you could actually think about multiple pathways coming out of every intervention context changes which of those pathways becomes a predominant one. And I think 
it was just a very simple way to organize your thoughts. And so now, for example, after reading that chapter, every time we get into a project with my team, we think about this. We think about, let's just first map out all the things that could happen. Because just knowing all those different things, I think, changes the way we think about doing the research. So to me, that was a big aha. Uh, I suspect Nina might have others. But yeah, I mean, that was great. Yeah, that is a, that is a really great chapter. But actually... I would say all of the chapters <laughs> and reading through all of them. I mean, since I'm not an expert in any of these specific topics, I felt that there were some really interesting uh, aha moments. So for example, um, speaking of the social norms that Dilip just talked about, we also have Christina Bicchieri, who is very well known when it comes to social norms and norm nudging, right? She makes, for example, a very clear point in the chapter, yes, social norms has been at this point widely, I mean, used in all kinds of different domains, right? But they don't always work. And we don't necessarily talk about, well, when do they work and when do they not work? And she said, for example, well, if you say, um, and if I want to take now the example that Dilip just mentioned, 70% of people, for example, have paid their taxes on time, right? Yes, that's one important piece of information, but what you also want to know is whether others in, around me think that one ought to do that. Mm -hmm. Because if 70% of people have paid their taxes on time, but I also believe that if I don't pay my taxes, it doesn't matter because people don't really care about it so much, then a social norm nudge will actually not work. And so these are s small things that we don't necessarily communicate that well as researchers. And then if somebody wants to just apply social norms um, outside in the wild and suddenly doesn't work, well, you know, it would yeah. be good if you had read then something like the chapter by Christina that gives you some ideas. We, we love Christina. We had her on a couple different times on the show. And I, I just remember one of the pieces that, again, it was the aha when she was talking about it with us is that it's not just that it's 70%, but that 70% has to be in the right reference group for you that you then, you know, it's like, it's not just your neighbors. It's all, it's the only certain neighbors that are going to be, you know, important to you. And so again, understanding those, those nuances, I think are really key as we're going through this. You guys identify a couple key problems that you kind of bring up as the, the idea of one is preparing orgs to accept behavioral science. That was one. And then two, this idea of knowledge translation and scaling. So what do you think keeps corporations or people in the wild from accepting behavioral science? What is it? What, what are there? Are there certain things that you, you guys identified? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I can get started and I'm, I'm sure Nina has stuff to add there because a lot of what I'm going to say was actually inspired by early conversations with Nina, but again, when she was here, is, is I think uh, organizations aren't set up to do science. They're not mm -hmm. set up to understand science and they're not set up. So, so let me just actually footnote that second claim. I, I'm, I'm not saying that people in organizations do not understand science per se, but they don't understand how behavioral science is different from other sciences. So let me exemplify by something that, that I've, I've uh, briefly alluded to in this book and then also in a previous book. Let's imagine I just, I do a thought experiment. I hold up an object, I don't know, this pen, which uh, your podcast listeners won't see, but I, there's a pen in my hand. Uh, and I ask you to predict what would happen if I release the pen. You know, 
I predict 100% of your listeners would say that the pen would fall to the next available surface, which in this case would be a tabletop. It doesn't matter what my name is. It doesn't matter whether this is the morning or the afternoon, whether it's raining outside or it's sunny. None of these things matter to the pen. It's going to fall. If this was a person making a, you know, a behavior change where all of these things might matter. We know, mm. for example, that people invest differently on sunny days as opposed to rainy days. We know that uh, physical presence of other people matter. The color of the pen might matter, right? And, and so in a lot of the other sciences, it has become acceptable to take what we call empirical generalizations, look at the literature, find effects that are consistent across. And as long as they've been shown a few times, we take them as the truth and then work with those, right? Um, ours is not like that. Ours is true. Uh, the phenomena is true. If it's a sunny day, if I collect data in the morning, if I'm only speaking to students. Um, and that's the part that a lot of people miss. Like they, we make it hard in our research to communicate all of these background variables, if you will, uh, to practitioners so that they, they have a hard time finding out whether the research applies or not. Now, mind you, on a science note, by the way, if I took this pen, if I was speaking to you from the moon, which I'm not, uh, the pen would float. Uh, and, and so the point is that every science has a bracket of context. It's just that in physics, it's a large bracket of context, but as <laughs> in the behavioral science, it is extremely narrow. And I think we haven't done well as a field to communicate that uh, for various reasons. You know, all of us on this on this podcast understand this. And so we believe that everybody understands it. Our journals don't give us the space to do it because they're interested in the effect and not Oh, by the way, it only happens when the following conditions matter. And I also think uh, people who are now used to consuming science through the news cycle have been trained to not look for these things. Everybody wants just a headline. And, and so we all, you know, we are told by our journals, we are told by our universities, give us the two minute version of your of your result. And that's what sticks in people's heads. So I think collectively, all these create a problem where we have a expectation challenge. People think that if Nina showed that just waving her hands can make people, you know, exercise more, maybe it should do the same thing for me. And it doesn't. And then people lose faith in the science. And, and, and so those are the kinds of questions that we've started doing some active research into. I think we do, we've done a lot of great research in behavioral sciences about consumers and end users. We haven't done a whole lot about the people that actually are going to do the intervention. So what's the consumption psychology of a practitioner? Mm. Uh, those are the questions that I don't think we have good answers to. So I'll, I'll pause there. Uh, Nina, Nina looks like she wants to jump in. So I will. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I know that Nina's done a lot of consulting work. You've worked a lot with corporations. So what, what are your thoughts about this? So I would say one of the challenges is also that some organizations or corporations are just not set up for testing, mm. like understanding what it means to test an idea, being willing to, 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 to measure something, make changes, improve something, measure again. I would say that, that some organizations are not set up for that or are not willing to do that. Because testing sometimes is also associated with not knowing and, and, and people are supposed to know. And, and so I think that sometimes may clash with expectations within an organization. So having a manager who is willing to say, yes, I'm going to now bring in some ideas from research and we are going to test this. And there is a chance it might not work, but we will learn something from that and then we will improve and, and whatnot. 
I think that that sometimes clashes with with an organizational culture, and 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 then in particular what Dilip also said when when it fails, what does that mean for my project? Are people losing the faith? The people who I had to convince that this is a new approach that I would like to take, and I think those are some of the of of the big obstacles that I've seen at least in in the beginning, but I feel that now, especially after having had so many wonderful books that have been written by academics, also for the general public, doing the translation work, and for example, also the great work that Dilip is doing with Bear, that more and more companies are understanding it. And there is now also more guidance on, okay, well, how do I change the organizational culture that within organizations, different management levels are more open to that kind of approach? Hey, Groovers, we're just taking a quick break from our conversation with Nina and Dilip to share something that we think is really important, particularly as it relates to applying behavioral science in the wild. It's our new Leading Human Workbook. Leading Human was created by the Behavioral Grooves team during the pandemic to try to address the challenges that frontline managers were feeling then and are still dealing with now. What separates it from many other workbooks is that it incorporates behavioral science throughout. We know that the operational and technology issues surrounding employees working remotely will subside, but the human challenges, the stresses of working in a hyper-dynamic world will continue. That's where a deep understanding of how to apply behavioral science insights in the wild with your team is so important. Leading Human is a book in two parts, a playbook and a workbook. Combined, they can improve your team's habits, communication, psychological safety, and ultimately, their productivity. You can check it out at behavioralgrooves.com under the products tab. You'll see it highlighted there and you'll be able to download a free white paper as well. Okay, now back to our discussion with Dilip and Nina. Nina, I think you've nailed a lot of this. I've seen it myself where it's that personal identity that they have that within an organization, if I put something out there that I could be wrong about that then reflects badly on me. So I'm going to be very cautious about doing anything like that. And to your point, I think, and, and this is anecdotal, but it is literally this idea that maybe that idea is shifting. Maybe, maybe that culture of having, always having to have the right answer if I'm in a leadership position is, is going away and, and people are more open to saying, let's test something. It may work. It may not, but at least let's learn from this. And hopefully, I think that's a positive piece as, as we're moving forward. I just want to say, Kurt, I, I think that the issue always has been that testing has been expensive. Yeah. And, and I think as the cost of experimentation goes down, we will see more of that openness. I keep talking about companies like Google. I mean, they don't need to have a strategy session to decide whether to, I don't know, you know, have a cluttered background or a clean background. They just test it yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. because they can do it. And, and I think to the extent we move all of business to sort of that place where it is safe and inexpensive, do, do you see timing involved in that too? Because I know that the, the speed that we can now do these, particularly in any of the technological, you know, kind of formats that that are there, because that's a big issue with organizations. Like, well, we'll have to put this experiment in, and it's going to take three months to to yeah. get the results, exactly. and by that time, it's like that's right. The world has changed. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's not just the timing of you know the speed of doing the experiment, but it's also your ability and your speed at, with which you can make changes based on what you learn. 
So if you're locked into like six-month planning cycles, what's the point of learning anything now? Because I can't do anything for six months about it. Uh, and as you said, by that time, the world has changed. And so we need to do... Re- so I do think we need to think about sort of the way companies do market research differently. I, I remember sort of, you know, as you can tell, I'm a bit of a Star Wars, Star Trek fan. So... <laughs> Which was the movie? Was it Empire Strikes Back where the Millennium Falcon is going through this asteroid belt? And, and I think the, the question is, uh, like, the probability of success is just, like, re- really low. And, and I think Hans Solo says something to the effect of, all I need is a good, you know, a, a good view screen uh, and the ability to maneuver the vehicle quickly. And, and I think that's the way we need to be thinking about research is, can we steer the ship quickly? So let's make everything more agile and nimble. And then let's just be very active with collecting data uh, because all of this, like, you know, taking stock of, of the last six months, I think that's, especially as the environment changes, it's, it's just not going to be sustainable anymore. I, getting back to what Nina said about the cost uh, involved in, uh, in experimenting, I wonder if part of it is cognitive. I wonder if part of the barriers aren't actual physical financial barriers, but but cognitive sort of things and biases of saying, well, we can't do that here. It, it's remarkable. Kurt and I are both in the practitioner world, and we work with pharmaceuticals and biomedical engineering firms, and these are very science-oriented companies. But when it comes to the people side, it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We can't change that email. <laughs> it's like, really? You test you test infinitely on your products to, to find out what works and what doesn't. Um, and and this kind of leads into the second half of that question that, that Kurt was asking, and, and this about scalability. We were recently um, involved in a conversation with the top 25 chief behavioral officers from corporations in the world, and scalability is a big issue for them. It's like once they actually get something started, it's really difficult to scale it for the entire organization. And I was wondering if, you, if either of you had any thoughts about that. I'll go uh, again, because this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. One of the things I've learned is nobody's nobody's incentivized to scale. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, most of my work is, is with governments and in every government unit or policymakers. Uh, the incentive for that unit is to come up with successful trials. So, you know, the annual reports was awaited like 25 trials this year. And so, great, we're done. Now, who's going to actually take those trials? and push them into the way government works, well, that's somebody else's problem. Um, And so I think we need to think about structurally what can we do to make it somebody's problem to scale. So I think that's that's just sort of the, as you were saying, uh, Tim, from the organizational standpoint. Uh, But there are other things. So so for example, I think the, the big issue is one of heterogeneity, is when we start doing our beta tests, we usually set them up to succeed. We pick subgroups that we believe are the most likely to show behavioral effects, and we are targeted and focused with what we do. And when you scale it up, a a few things happen. One is now you get heterogeneous groups of people. So, you know, people in Ontario, in Canada, showed the effect. People in Quebec don't. And and so we get that sort of heterogeneity. Uh, But we also, as we scale up the way in which we deliver messages, for example, changes, so in the book, for example, I, I, I give the example of a project that I've been involved in in South Korea, where, you know, I've done a lot of research uh, early on where we kind of said, well, look, we know that people overspend when they use credit cards compared to when they use cash and checks. We knew that. 
We also knew from our lab research and our pilots that we've done that if you give people feedback on how much they have spent, that overspending reduces, right? So the idea is that now I know how much I'm spending. I'm sort of tracking my expenses a bit better. In South Korea, they tried to do that. They tried to do that with text message alerts and uh, it backfired. In fact, uh, for about 85% of people, you got the opposite effect. People started spending more rather than less. And the reason why that happened was that there was sort of this so-called digital outsourcing phenomena going on. Like, you know, you would talk to people and say, well, my app keeps track of all of that. So not only were they not reading the information, they were now trusting the app. They'd say things like, if I ever need to know how much I'm spending, I can go to the app. So they were actually demotivated from keeping track, right? So these are the kinds of things that when you scale, you have to be on top of. And, And so I think um, that's the other challenge. And, uh, you know, once we have a pilot, uh, our, our tendency is to say, well, let's, let's just do the same thing all across the country, or all, all across the province, and that doesn't work. So I think these are two big, big issues here. Do, do you guys find scaling not only with just the uh, added audiences or participants within it, but also in the time frame that goes on? Because, again, when we think about lab experiments, not all of them, but the vast majority are pretty much time constrained small, you know, time set that that they're working in. And I think some of the things that we've seen are just this idea that, all right, but if you take a longer time frame and you look at whatever intervention is being put in, that changes the scale and the output of those as well. Do you see that? Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, this is one of the inherent limitations of doing a pilot is that it is time constrained, right? And and so we never actually have the ability to document longer term effects. And, and that, that's a big issue. There's also issues of adaptation, right? Uh, people mm-hmm. get used to an intervention and we don't usually study that. Now, Nina has got some great work on that showing that you can actually try the same intervention over time. Uh, I'm probably butchering your findings, Nina, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but essentially that, that, that there are longer term effects. Is that is that fair, Nina? Is that that's yeah, what you guys I, find? I, like? I actually wanted to say something about that. So you read my mind a little Yeah, so, I mean, oftentimes research is just not set up to monitor the effect of an intervention over a longer period because you would need so many more resources and you would never get to write your paper, which is the ultimate goal as academic, right? So we just don't have that much knowledge about how stable certain interventions are because, as Philip said, I mean, people may get used to an intervention. Sometimes an intervention works particularly well when, when it's entirely new and surprising, right? And that definitely wears off the, the, the more often you actually are exposed to the same intervention. And I just recently had a paper out with two former students from the Rotten School. So Julian House, who's now at, who's now at the, the nudge unit or the behavioral insights team of the government of Ontario and Nicole Robitaille is a professor at Queen's University. And what we did is with the government um, of Ontario, with the finance ministry, we were actually able to execute the same intervention in two consecutive years to organizations that were late paying certain taxes. And so we could see whether the same intervention worked in two consecutive years, if the effect got stronger, if it got weaker. And since we had it for two consecutive years, and not necessarily all organizations that were laid in the first year were laid in the second year. We had a really nice mix. And so we could see what happens to the organizations that got it in the first year, but not in the second year, that got it in both years, that didn't get it in any of the years, or that got it in the second year, but not in the first year. And, and we saw that, for example, this particular intervention that we had chosen worked 
in both years equally well. If you saw it two times in a row, and in a row here means one year apart, it also worked. So there was no wear off. But if you got it in the first year and you happened to be late again in the second year, but you didn't get the intervention in the second year, the effect was not there, right? Because if you got a reminder a year ago, you will certainly not think about it the year later, right? And those are the type of insights that we rarely get from research. And I think this is where we can really benefit much more from working together with organizations that have the capability and also the interest yeah. to monitor what happens over time. Yeah, this is foundational, isn't it? That that organizations, corporations specifically, need to take an interest in this. Um, and uh, Nina, I'd, I'd like to address this uh, question to start with you. But what happens when when the practitioner tries the intervention, says, "Okay, I've read the paper. I think I get the idea of what's happening here. I'm curious about it. Um, I, I'm going to try an intervention." They work with their boss. They come up with some plan, and then it it doesn't do anything. It doesn't work even remotely in the way that they expected it would happen. What what would you, uh, What first of all, what kind of coaching would you give for those practitioners to lift their, their hearts off the, the pavement and pull themselves back in? But what, what would you say to them? Well, I mean, I just want to add to that. At the end of the day, as researchers, we have that too, right? We may try to replicate our finding or somebody else may try to replicate our results and it doesn't work. But it's important to not take that personal in, in any way. It's also important to realize when you get a null effect, it's really hard to find out what is the reason. But if you are, but if you really want to learn, you have to do some de detective work, right? So one work is to try to find out what were the differences between my approach and the approach that was published. It's also good to check in: has everything actually worked the way I intended it mm -hmm. to be? Maybe I wasn't aware that somewhere along the way of my implementation, something went wrong and somebody made, had to make a call and made a call on a question and didn't tell me that, right? I mean, you have to be willing to do detective work if you're interested in trying to understand why something failed. And I do think as researchers, we should actually put also more time into understand when something works and when it doesn't, because this way you actually learn what are the necessary requirements? But oftentimes when something doesn't work, we may also just stop working on it because we think, oh, okay, it's just not as robust a finding. It's not worth my time. I can spend my time on something else. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm actually mixing here the perspective of the researcher as well as an organization. But I think the willingness has to be there to say, I can learn not just from successes, but also from failures. But from failures, it may sometimes be harder because you have to do some detective work. Yeah. I just going to say, I, I think we need to do a better job of helping people assess the relevance of research to their situation. So, you know, it might be a, a little checklist that helps them understand whether the kind of behavior change that they are looking to engineer is the same as what this particular paper tried to do, or it could be, is it the same sort of population? Uh, is the way in which the message delivered identical? Stuff like that. I think once we make it salient that the situation that you, the practitioner, are dealing with isn't identical to what Nina, the researcher, did, I think it's relatively easy for them to understand why things didn't work. 
but I think that this is it, is people don't really get into the weeds to figure out how and to whom and in, in what precise form these interventions were delivered. And, and as Nina said, I mean, as a researcher, sometimes that happens to me as well. I mean, I've been in a project where we've got beautiful results and then uh, we kept the project aside for a little while, came back after four months, the same experiment, the same intervention stopped working. And it took us two years of succeeding and failing to figure out that, you know, every time we collected data in the summer when people weren't busy, this was a paper about how busy people make allocation decisions. But in the summer, we didn't see the effects because people didn't feel busy. And so they weren't (laughs) using the heuristic that we thought they would use. But it took us a while to get there. And I think just having a systematic tool to think about, you know, these you know, Richard keeps calling them SIFs, uh, supposedly irrelevant factors, right? But yeah, if we yeah. can helpfully document these different kinds of SIFs and help people realize that they matter, I think that'll be a victory. I, I love this idea of becoming a detective, as Nina, as you're talking about, right? It's Because it's, you you do, you have to look at this. And then, as you were saying, Dilip, that what are those contextual factors that might have influenced the SIFs, as you said, those, these pieces that you know, all right. I, I look at a lot of the the replication components that we go in and we you think about, and you know, it's been really fascinating when you see some of these that that maybe haven't replicated, but then the, they go the the step further and just saying, oh, that that well, here's the reason why, and that is where I think the real value comes in, not just from a research perspective, but from that practitioner perspective as well, because then you're going, we can apply these in these types of situations, just as you were saying, that they have that checklist and say, okay, it'll work in this situation, but it probably won't work in these situations. And you're going to be much better informed from an organizational perspective, but also have a better understanding of all of these as we're moving forward. So I will get off my my soapbox and uh, <laughs> just go. I, I know Tim is dying to ask about music. So I'm going to ask one last question for you guys, and then we'll, we'll, we'll allow him to, to feed his fantasy here. If there was one thing or insight that you would want readers to, to take away from the book, what what would that be? What is there? Is there one kind of overarching kind of component that you would think? Either one of you can start. I'll, I'll go with the, the nut store. And the temptation to avoid simply shopping in the nut store without doing your own research. I mean, we've seen people do this. We've seen people say, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, here's a situation. Let me see who else has done something similar where they've reframed information and gotten people to behave differently. And and so they find a paper by Kahneman and Tversky that did that. And they'll say, well, let me just do the same thing. And then it doesn't work. Uh, so I think either doing research in the context in which you're going to implement. I think that's key. We call it in-situ research. But if, if, if you can't do that for whatever reason, at least running some sort of a checklist about their situation versus ours to make a judgment about whether there is a fit or not. To me, that's the central thing. Nina? So that's, that's a difficult one. There's so many. But if, if, if I had to pick one, which I have. <laughs> so since I have to pick one, I think expect that there will be much more heterogeneity, much more variance mm. when you are applying the work. Because again, the real world is is wild and our and our research is usually not based on all that variance in individuals, their thoughts, their thinking. I'm sorry, that was a question like almost like which is your favorite child? And I, I know that's hard. So <laughs> so thank you guys for both of answering that. And Mr. Houlihan, are are, are you are you ready with your a music question, or is it something oh, that you haven't even thought of? 
No, no. I've thought about this. This is one of the most important things I think about whenever we're preparing for when I'm reading the book. I'm looking for musical hints and tips. But but I'd like to ask each of you, if you were to be stuck on a desert island for a year with, you know, let's just assume that you're safe and all those kinds of things. What two musical artists catalog would you take with you? Just two? Just it's two. A year. You, you, it's once a whole again, year. Once again, he's making you choose your favorite kids. Which ones are you going to save out of the fire? Here you come. Uh, Nina, do you have two? Nina looks like she's ready. Just go ahead and jump on in. <laughs> I, I, I wish the, our listeners could see. Nina has a very uh, thoughtful, you know, contemplative look on her face. Like, I'm not sure how to answer this, but, <laughs> but I kind of want to put Nina under the bus on this uh, first, because you were the one that said you like music. So I love music. Yes. But it would be really, I mean, just picking two, I, I, oof, you know, the, well, then I should pick some, somebody or a group with, with, with a lot of albums. <laughs> ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So we're variety a seeking large catalog. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Well, I can tell you that I love The Cure quite a bit. This is from for, for, for quite a while. I like them. Um, so did you say The Cure? Big, yeah, The Cure. They have a long discography or where you say it, right? You just scored points with Kurt. Just going <laughs> to say that. Okay. And who else? Oh, yeah. How about I let Dilip now say what he oh. <laughs> So come back to your second. I like this. There we go. We can trade That's out. That's good. All right. All right. So... Um, it's a tough one. So there's two genres. So there's one genre that maybe you guys don't listen to as much, which is Indian classical. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the greatest artist, in my opinion, the exponent of Indian vocal classical was a woman called Kishori Yamonkar. She passed away a few years ago. She's from the Jaipur Gharana, absolutely masterful. So I could listen to her for a year. Uh, and I wouldn't need a second one, but uh, I would love, wow, uh, wow. I guess the choice for my second one would be classic rock, uh, Dire Straits, Supertramp, Fleetwood oh. Mac, maybe Dire Straits would win that slot. I just want to uh, affirm both of those are, are uh, fantastic. Monkar is outstanding vocalist, Mike. Absolute God. genius. Yeah, absolute yeah genius. Tr truly, truly genius. Yeah. And and the and the differences between, um, I, I think she really does a great job of highlighting the differences between uh, the the scale in yes. uh, the Asian scale versus right. the uh, the Western scale. So That's you get right. this really lovely broad uh, sense of vocal ability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. You didn't mention, uh, you know, you didn't go for the easy Ravi Shankar, uh, you know, for just pulling up the. If blah, you had blah, given blah. me a third, uh, Ravi Shankar would have been in contention for the instrumental. But I, okay. I would still think someone like an El Subramaniam would pip Ravi Shankar. He plays the violin, yeah. uh, and again, his breadth is 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 amazing. So he's done like this uh, this beautiful yeah. album a few years, well, not a few, many years ago with Stefan Grappelli called Conversations. Yes, yes, uh, yes. It, like, that's it. amazing, right? And, and to me, I think that whole mm -hmm. tradition of having musical conversations is is beautiful. So I, I, that would have been my third. Yeah, that is a fabulous Convergence yeah. record. Yeah. That's that's yeah. better than John McLaughlin and 
and uh, and Carlos Santana in uh, the Ma Vishnu Orchestra. As far as I'm concerned, that's fantastic. Okay, back back to Nina. I'm sorry. This could. This, I'm. I just have to. I just have to inter- interject here because as, as soon as Tim started talking about Asian scales and and Western scales, I was like, he just went well over my my musical knowledge and and head, we'll and I'm just sitting it. here going. I've listened to the Tim talk about the stuff for you know four years plus on this, and I still need more edu- education on this. So we'll anyway. move on it. We'll we'll fill the <laughs> listeners in on on the differences when we do our grouping. Oh, fantastic, session. Nina. You know, Dilip, you um, you inspired me to to suggest maybe an artist from the Balkan. <laughs> fantastic. A- anyone in particular? There's a lady called Shemsa. She, she uh, you know, if you're interested in learning a little bit about Balkan music, it's very, it's coming really from inside your body, from the heart, and you can, you can feel the love, you can feel the pain, and it's always extremely dramatic. I went once to a live concert of hers, and she has this amazing voice, and then there's a break, and in that break, she just smokes. it's like this lifestyle you you take life you know the way it is with your whole body with everything and you enjoy and you go through all the emotions so it's very intense so that's something to try but if i had to pick something more western maybe kate bush she is interesting i think and in 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 the way yeah she's great choice great choice It is such a pleasure to have both of you with us and to share your um, your musical knowledge. Oh, as well as talk about the book. And so <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really a delight. And thank you both for being guests on Behavioral Grooves. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Dilip and Nina, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our wild minds. Yeah, we are in the wild, aren't we? We Well, we actually, true, we are. We are in the wild. Our work, the yeah. you know, we're not doing basic research, but we are doing applied no. research and applying behavioral science principles in the wild, in corporations and companies, in all of that stuff. So, yeah, we are. We're in the wild, Tim. That's an interesting way of framing it. You know, I oftentimes think about like primary versus secondary research. You're kind of saying there's sort of this primary research, but then there's this applied research. Like we are with our clients in each of our practices, we are trying to understand what interventions will work in any given situation. And understanding Uh, the context and how, yes, all right. So we know you brought up social proof in the beginning, uh, right? And we've talked about that. Well, to that fact, that social proof, 70% of the time, but it doesn't apply to all 30. So, you know, in, right. in the applied world, that 30% is important. And so, yeah, that can work and draw this, but how do you get that other 30% involved? How do you get um, all these other factors that come into play? So that's the work that we're doing. We're taking the applied science that the researchers have done, which is fantastic. I'm sorry, not the applied, the, the basic research. And we're trying to apply that into the real world. I think that that's great. You know, one more just riff on that. I think about a a lot of the incentive programs that I've designed, getting results to go from having, say, 30 or 35 percent of the people earn and, you know, win a contest to closer to 50 Mm percent. 
that's a huge, huge deal. And yet that still says there's still another 50% of people that didn't win. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and if it's designed in such a way that, Hey, if everybody won, the company would be fantastic, right? This is, yeah, this yeah. is the way then what else can we do in order to make sure that we're getting and motivating the, that additional 50% to go above yeah. and beyond to do that, which is the stuff that is fun. It's the stuff that is, yeah. all right, this is great, but now let's take whatever this great research is and figure out how do we apply it? How do we, how do we do this? And this is one of the important things that I think I took away from this conversation is that not all scientific study is destined for the wild. Ah, that sometimes there is, yeah. there's some of that research that is just great research and it doesn't really apply or in a way that is something that we can utilize in a, in a meaningful way, or at least maybe not at this time, maybe future right. it could be, but you know, we have to do research sometimes for research sake. Yeah. Like we wouldn't have websites if it wasn't for the World Wide web. We wouldn't have the World Wide web if it wasn't for the creation of the internet. And we wouldn't have the creation of the internet if it wasn't for research done on, on uh, packet sharing. You know, if it wasn't for the, for the ability to kind of figure out what these, these damn little data packets can be, can be sent to break up big chunks of information into very small packets. That work was done in the 1960s and it took years to actually bring it to fruition. But you know, I, that's, I did not know you were a, a techie kind of guy there, man. <laughs> that's freaking amazing. So, okay. But I, I didn't, I didn't know that. That's cool. This idea that, Hey, the, the initial piece of this wasn't designed for what it ended up being, but right, in the end, right. It's getting utilized in different ways. And I think that's a key piece of this. It's also, yes. I mean, if we take a behavioral science perspective on this, right? You know, there's a lot of neuro kind of work that is going in and you're looking at which areas of the brain light up in certain different situations or using certain types of rewards, et cetera. And while that's really interesting and potentially could have some really big impacts down the road, it's hard to really apply that right now. All right. So yeah. do I care yeah. that the amygdala gets activated in this situation versus the prefrontal, you know, the medial prefrontal cortex in this? Or what are the different release mechanisms for, you know, the very different neuromodulators? It's all really fascinating. And sometimes there can be some application. But I think, you know, right now, those are difficult. Those are hard. They help us understand. But how do we then translate that understanding into real world applications. And that's, yeah. you know, and I'm sure if somebody's out there and they're doing that and they can let us know because I'm sure I, somebody just pissed somebody off because they're going, I use this and I, it's, we're doing it then this way. So please well, let us know. We would love to hear from that. Yeah. It makes me think about a conversation we have with Kiara Verrazani, who is the chief uh, behavioral scientist at the OECD. And she's a neuroscientist. And I remember her saying that between every stimulus and every action, there's something happening in our brain. Mm. And so as a neuroscientist, she's trying to understand what those are. Not that there are necessarily implications right away. Yeah. It's just, just trying to figure out what the hell is happening is a big deal. And we have to understand what's happening before we can do anything with it. And, and again, there's a, there's a element, just like you talked about in that, uh, the internet and World Wide web and et cetera piece, right? There's a certain groundswell of information that needs to come together. And so that initial basic research on packets, as you said, well, that had to get overlaid with, you know, other fact, I don't, I'm not even going to try to talk tech stuff, right? you know, but it had to get overlaid with all these other things before that packet piece actually, you know, became applicable to the, the real world. 
at least in that manner. And I think that is the piece that we, I, I think that I'm taking away from our conversation with Dilip and Nina. So that's all fantastic. I, I couldn't agree more. I also think that it's, it's worth pointing out that corporations just really aren't set up to be scientific labs. What do you mean? Of course what, they are. They yeah, have labs in every single company, right? Don't they? <laughs> McDonald's and has a kitchen. They, they do a testing kitchen, don't they? Come on. And chief behavioral officers at each of them? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, we still need researchers, right? Yes, we still need yes. we still need uh, academic institutions that are going to be dedicated to research, and we still need practitioners. and And I think it's okay for them to live in different worlds. I think they could talk more, <laughs> they could communicate more with each other, but it's okay for them to live in different worlds because their goals are still you know, somewhat, somewhat separate. And I, I think that that's a, that's an okay thing. Well, and, uh, and part of this, and this was conversation that we had with, with Nina in particular, um, this idea that we have this time horizon, right? Both from a research perspective, they have a time horizon on what they need to yeah. do and get things done by. And corporations often have a big, or actually a short time horizon because yeah. they're looking at next quarter and, and things that are happening right away. And so, this idea yeah. of having a lab to be able to take these longitudinal studies and be able to apply this over time is really important. And I think we need to do more of that. And I, I go back, actually, it was some of the work that Oleg Erminsky and Indranil Gaswani did on rewards. This idea for, for years, DC and Ryan had talked about this uh, decrease in intrinsic motivation when you add an extrinsic reward to the thing. And that was taken as gospel across much of the yeah. world. And, yes, and, what, and what Oleg and Indrano did is they, they looked and said, all right, this, okay, let's actually look at this in the wild because, wow, a lot of companies are still using incentives. This is not something- Extrinsic it, motivators. Extrinsic yeah. motivators. And what they found is that, yeah, in the short term, in the time that the lab looked at uh, behavior and different pieces, that when you added an extrinsic reward in, subsequent behavior of that same thing fell. So that's how they measure the intrinsic reward. My free time choice to do something fell after the fact. But what the researchers didn't do is just extend that out long enough to look and right. say, all right, right, so does this continue on for months and months or years? And when they did look at longer timeframes, what they find is that oftentimes that extrinsic reward, yeah, you have an immediate decrease after the fact, but it is either um, long-term, either the same kind of motivation that you had, or it actually increases motivation. So those are pieces that, again, from a time perspective, that sometimes even the labs aren't set up to do, and sometimes corporations can, and we need to do more of that. So Yeah. I also want to, uh, there's two things that I want to say about that. One is that uh, additional research has been done to better understand how a personality is impacted by an extrinsic versus an intrinsic reward. And there's been research to identify that salespeople are natively more calculative. Mm. And so the extrinsic rewards actually work better on salespeople than on people in accounting, for instance. They have a self-selection bias because they have yes. they've chosen to go into sales partly because they understand that they have this opportunity to do that. So 
that yeah, yeah it's that's, that intrinsic thing is 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 has been important that really was never really considered in DC and Ryan's early work. And then the other thing is that when you talk about sequencing, and I'm reminded of of some research that uh, George Lowenstein did with a bank, trying to understand how uh, the bank was trying to solve a problem to get more people to with high value accounts to invest them with the bank uh, rather than draw down on them, rather to actually you know withdraw. And so they tried messaging and they tried um, gifts and they tried cash rewards and, and, and they tried, and the clever part of the study was that George tried different sequencing. You know, in some cases it was a message first, a thank you, and then it was like candy later and it was, you know, small candy or big candy. And, and in some situations it was, you know, send them a gift first and then message them the thank you and in different ways. And the sequence matters a big damn difference. Mm. And this is just with a tiny bit of isolation that you can get in in this particular situation. There's still an awful lot of variance in in how people respond, which comes down to this idea of behavioral science in the wild and all of the contextual factors that come into play. The idea that you can't isolate a single behavior because right. you are in a situation where you have coworkers and and clients and you have. Uh, environmental pieces and you have the economy and you have a variety of different things that are coming into play. And so it's much harder to take all of that into the situation and say, all right, we're going to apply this one principle to drive this one behavior. And that I think is the interesting piece of this book as well as kind of that where this research is leading. So yeah, agreed. Okay. Well, I think then that probably wraps up this episode of Behavioral Grooves. What do you think, Tim? I think it does. We loved it. Yeah, it we, we love talking to Nina and, and Dilla. All right. So the conversation with Dilla and Nina was like a breath of fresh air and a real treat to take two, two of the most influential researchers in behavioral science today. And we got to talk to them. And they remind yeah. us that it's perfectly fine that not all scientific studies translate into the wild. Yeah. It's also perfectly fine that behavioral science is messy. You know, uh-huh. unlike... Algebra or geometry, you know, the, the pen study, you know, yeah. there's things that we can predict with with those hard sciences, but behavioral science is different. And and like we, you know, we like to say in behavioral groups, context matters. Hashtag just saying. And uh, the testing for contacts, contacts, contexts can be very, very challenging. That's yeah. what I want to say. Yeah. And, and saying context can be very, very challenging, too. It, it, apparently today it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we hope that you have enjoyed this conversation and that you take a moment, just a moment, to leave us a quick rating or type in a short review. Doing either of those goes a long way in helping other people who are searching for good behavioral science podcasts to find us. And you know what? In the wild, that's a good thing, right? We <laughs> like that. It's not just a scientific research thing that says, no. oh, if you leave a review, no. more people. No, we know that when you leave reviews, we get more more listeners. So, hey, there you yeah. go. Uh, and as always, Groovers, thank you for listening. We super appreciate you spending time with us. And we hope that you learned something from our conversation with Nina and Dilla. We also hope that you can take some of those cognitive riffs with you this week and go out and find your groove. 